Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Muella. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. I promise you I didn't plan this out this way. Uh, when, when I felt like I wanted to do this Sermon on the Mount series, we've been calling it the Upside Down Kingdom. And the reason why we've called this sermon series the Upside Down Kingdom is because we believe that as Christians, Jesus has called us to live a lifestyle that's antithetical to the world. Um, a lot of times the world will look at us and say, hey, the lifestyle you're leading is different. And I want to let you know that the, the difference that we lead in our lives is the saltiness that is going to minister to, to those that don't believe in Jesus. And I would hope that Inspire Church would be a church full of members that would live a lifestyle where people who don't know Jesus would look at you and say, man, there's something about you that's amazing. And I think a lot of times, and some of you in here, maybe you haven't been coming to church a lot or you've been in and out of church. A lot of the times, probably one of the reasons why you don't go to church is because you've seen a couple of Christians live lifestyles that you kind of rather not live. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus called us to live such amazing lifestyles in him um, that you would look and you would say, man, that's amazing. I want that, too. And so what the Upside Down Kingdom has been about is us going through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains to his followers uh, what a Christian is supposed to look like. And obviously, uh, for, a, for, for those that are here casually, um, as we go through these, you're supposed to see what a model Christian looks like. And for those of you that are a Christian, you're supposed to be challenged by it and um, begin to conform your life to God's word. And so I promise, like I said, I didn't, I didn't plan this, but it just so happens that it's Valentine's weekend, I guess you can say. I guess maybe next weekend could be. But we're a couple of days before Valentine's Day, and it just so happens we happen to be going over the portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, talks about divorce and marriage. And so, um, again, like last week, I will tell you when to put your seatbelt lights are on. For those of you here last week, you know when you're on an airplane and it starts to get a little bumpy and the little light boom, goes on and they say, fasten your seatbelts. I might do that a couple of times in my message. And that just means I'm about to say something that might cut you a little bit. And so just be ready. Put your seatbelt on. Enjoy. the. See, when the Holy Spirit cuts, it's a good thing. He, he cuts the hill. Other people cut to hurt. Jesus cuts the hill. So as we move forward today, just know that there may be some things in the Sermon on the Mount that may poke at you, and it may be poking at the lifestyle that you're living, but my thing is don't run away from God's word. Embrace it. Allow it to do what it's meant to do in your life, and I promise blessings will come. Amen? So we good? All right. We're good right now. I'll ask you that again at the end of the service, but um, Matthew chapter 5. There's actually several different, uh, uh, different places that we're going to be at today, um, but uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to go a little backwards. We're going to work a little backwards, um, but hopefully it's all going to make sense um, as we move forward. So Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 37, then I'm going to pause there, say a couple of things, and we'll move forward. Um, so scripture reads like this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's interesting. Let what you say be simply yes or no. 
anything more than this comes from evil. Now, we're going to pause right there, and I'm going to share a little story uh, as I was reading this that I remembered as a child. Um, how many of you guys remember, maybe with your friends, and maybe some of you still do this today, but making promises, but when you were younger, you made promises, but remember you used to swear to God? So there's a difference between like, hey, I'm going to be there tomorrow, or no, I swear to God I'll be there. Do you remember making that promise? A lot of you in here are like, oh my gosh, you swear to God, right? Because a lot of you were taught, don't do that. You know, you would swear to God. And it's, uh, what's kind of crazier is that um, uh, maybe as a child you would even pinky promise, right? So there was just something about maybe guys didn't do this, maybe ladies did. Uh, but there's just something about putting a pinky on it, right? And so you kind of pinky promise. And then, um, and then as you get a little older, you used to put it on your mama, that, which was kind of messed up. <laughs> swear to God, I put this on my mom. Right? I've heard some of you in here say that, you know? Uh, we've all been guilty. Some of you have sent your mama to the grave a hundred times. Shame on you. I swear to God, I put that on my mama, pinky promise, right? And then if you could remember, and maybe, again, this could have happened when you were a kid, although some of you may do this now. Um, you could swear to God or pinky promise or put it on your mama, but if anything was crossed during that moment, it was, like, canceled out. Do you remember that? So if you told, no, I'm telling the truth, but you crossed your eyes, it canceled it out, right? Or if you crossed your finger, remember, you used to be like, oh, no, seriously, and you had your finger. And then you used to be like, see, I have my fingers crossed. You remember doing that, right? You crossed your feet. You cross Anything that was crossed nullified any promise that you made. <laughs> That's why when you watch people get married, if the husband's up there saying this during his vows, you got to stop that wedding quickly. There's a problem. Now... <laughs> It's kind of childish, maybe, maybe not. Some of us still do this. But uh, what Jesus is saying is this. Um, the reason why you swear to God or the reason why you put it on your mom, um, the reason why we do these things is because our word is not good enough. That we've become a people where our word is not good enough. And so as a humanity, we feel like we need to put something extra on it just for somebody to believe us. Our yes and our no's are no longer our yes and our no's. And what's even crazier than that is the Pharisees used to do the same thing. They would find loopholes, ways to cross their fingers, ways to swear or not to swear to certain things. Certain swears wouldn't matter. Well, if I did it this way, it wouldn't count. But you had to do it this way, and it would count. And so what the Pharisees would do was they would totally look for a loophole to make sure that they didn't have to do everything that they said that they would do. And Jesus says in verse 34, if you're still there, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of God, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. So just like you swear to God or put it on your mom, the Pharisees used to swear by heaven, they used to swear by earth, they used to swear by the temple, they used to swear by Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, don't swear by any of those things, because they all belong to God. So when you swear on those things, you're still saying something about God. When you put it on your mama, that's God made your mama. So it ultimately lands on God. In other words, there are no loopholes. There are no formulas. There are no things you can swear on or swear by that don't involve God. Anytime you make an oath or anytime you swear, you're swearing on something that involves God. So don't do it. Jesus says there's no need to do it. Just let your yes be your and your no be your good. 
Now, as Christians, it seems so simple, but we should be men and women of our word. And we should keep our promises. And if you have to find something more fantastic to swear on, it's only because we reason with ourselves that our word is not good enough. Does that make sense? Honest men are in no need of oaths. Swearing is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Now, I want you to do me a favor. From this morning on, strive to become a person where other people can trust your yes and trust your no. You see, as followers of Jesus, our word should be enough. You know, there are a lot of non-believers or casual observers of Christianity. And like I said earlier, a lot of times what they'll tell you is, you know, I love the Jesus of the Bible. I just don't love the followers of the Jesus of that Bible. I wish they would look a little bit more like him. Sometimes it's unfair. Sometimes it's just an excuse. But a lot of times the truth is, is that believers don't keep their word. And that if you're a Christian man or woman, and if you are in your workplace, in your job place, if you're with your friends or with your family, or if you're in your school, that a lot of times you can be the salt of this world by simply keeping your word, being a man or a woman of your word. I remember a long time ago, um, I, I had, uh, there was just something that really spoke to my heart as Paul was writing in Corinthians. He, he says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And I remember I heard this saying, or not heard this saying, but this kind of came to my mind. A man of God or a woman of God um, is strong enough to say yes, but is also strong enough to say no. Sometimes we think we got to, some of us have a yes problem in here. You say yes to everything because you don't want to let anybody down. But sometimes one of the healthiest things you can do is say, everybody with me now, say no. no. <laughs> and then there are some of you who have a fear of commitment, a fear of missing out, and getting you to commit and say yes to anything is, is almost impossible. And so as a man or a woman of God, you should strive to have a yes in your spirit. You should strive to have a no in your spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I started out out of order this morning because I wanted the oath and the promises to emphasize this next point. Making a promise in marriage is one of the most important promises anyone can make. And if the church is going to prove to the world that we honor our word, there is no other place that we're going to prove to the world the most than in the place of our marriage. Can I get an amen? Can I, from the married people, even if you're fighting, it's okay. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm going to say that again because I liked it, and I'm going to preach it to myself. Philip, <laughs> making a promise is one of the most important things that we can do as Christians. Making a promise in marriage is a sign and a wonder to the world. And when we keep that promise, we witness to the glory of Jesus in our households. We need to start honoring our commitments to marriage. I think a mar healthy marriages is a sign of a healthy church. And if Inspire Church is going to be a healthy church, we are going to have healthy marriages. And all the married couples continue to bless the Lord this morning.
Now, singles, don't turn me out today. I want you to listen as well. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Seatbelts on. <laughs> Here it comes. Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32. This is what Jesus says. It was also said, you guys ready? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't leave. I promised God that if I was going to be a pastor, I wasn't going to skip over the hard parts. There's one thing you got to know about this church. We will not skip over scripture because I feel like it's going to make people not want to come back. It's one thing from this church. God's plan for humanity since creation has always been a lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. It's been said, there is no unhappiness, listen to this, there is no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. I say this again? Hear this, there is no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. And almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. You see, marriage was so important to Jesus that when the Pharisees mentioned the word divorce, he ignored it and took an opportunity to elevate marriage higher. I'm going to say that again. Marriage was so important to Jesus that when the Pharisees even mentioned the word divorce, he ignored it and talked about marriage even more. I want you to hear what Jesus has to say in another part, portion of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to read verse 3 through 8, and it says this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Red flag. You see the red flag there? Any cause. You guys see that? Talk, pretend. Do you guys see that? Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the begin beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer are one, but are two. Or they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, listen, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one, to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said to them, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. Ouch. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's four points I want to make regarding Jesus' heart towards marriage and divorce. 
Put your seatbelts on. I promise we're going to go through this. I'm going to explain it to you. But I believe we're all going to walk out of here understanding the heart of God. Amen? Number one, marriage is a divine institution. And in God's eyes, marriage is permanent. When a man and a woman leave their families and publicly commit to one another, God sees them as one flesh. Number two, Jesus focused on the sacredness of marriage while the Pharisees looked for loopholes and opportunities to divorce. You guys see that? Jesus focused on the sacredness of marriage while the Pharisees were looking for ways to get out. Notice their words in verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? <laughs> any cause should disturb you because it disturbed Jesus. This is why Jesus takes his time and he rebukes and corrects the Pharisees because any cause, because they were creating an any cause culture. During the time of Christ, let me explain this to you. Rabbis interpreted Moses' divorce concession. So Mo Moses allowed people to have certificates of divorce. Rabbis interpreted these certificates of divorce in this way. If she proved to be incompetent in cooking, they said it was okay to divorce her. If she burnt her husband's food, he could divorce her. If he lost interest in her, they could divorce. If he lost interest in her because of her plain looks, they could divorce. If he lost interest of, with her because he became enamored with someone else, more beautiful, it was justified that they could divorce. This any cause culture opened up Pandora's box of excuses. And before you laugh, which you already did, you indicted yourself because that's the same culture we live in today. It's funny how we can laugh when, because it's so far away from us, but the minute it becomes close to our culture, it becomes serious. I think, and you could disagree with me, and that's totally okay. What they do is really resembles what we do in our culture today. And rather than entertaining these any reasons, thoughts, Jesus corrects them by saying God's ideal for marriage is still the same today as it was at the very beginning of time. Two become one flesh, and in the eyes of God, marriage is permanent. Are you with me? Number three. The Pharisees called Moses' divorce provision a command. I don't know if you caught that. While Jesus saw it as a concession from God because of the hardness of human hearts. <laughs> you see, the Pharisees said two things that were interesting. They said, can you divorce for any cause? And then they said another thing is, well, Moses commanded that we should divorce. And it's so interesting how we need to be people of Scripture and I want you to know something, since the very beginning of time, hear me out, since the very beginning of time, the job of Satan is to distort scripture. From the very beginning of time, he, he comes to Eve in the garden. He says, did God really say? Are you sure he said that? And he always, I want you to know the enemy's job is to attack the word of God in your life. 
His job is to distort it, lower it, ignore it, walk away from it, to confuse you, to cause doubt and hindrance, because God's word is God's word. Are you with me? And so the Pharisees' choice of words, Moses commanded. Jesus immediately corrects this. It's a distortion of the truth. And he says, divorce was never commanded. It was only a concession given by God because God knows just how hard-hearted humanity is. What do you mean by that? I'm going to tell you, sin in humanity will inevitably cause some marriages to be seriously defiled beyond repair. At which point, even though it is not God's ideal, God still provides a way of an escape. Are you with me? But listen, and this is important. Even when divorce is allowed, it is only permitted on very specific grounds. This ensures some relief without developing an any cause culture. Do you get that? So even though God concedes that a certificate of divorce is allowed, it's under specific circumstances, which ensures that there will be relief to those that have been really hurt, but it ensures that we don't create a culture of any cause. Are you with me? And this leads us to our last point here. In the eyes of God, what are his standards of righteousness regarding marriage and divorce? I'm going to answer that. In the eyes of God, what are his standards of righteousness regarding marriage and divorce? Jesus says this, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Listen, divorce and remarriage are allowed if someone has been a victim of adultery and infidelity. Now watch, divorce is allowed, but it's not required. In fact, and you may not like this, Forgiveness and reconciliation is closer to God's heart. Restoring a marriage should always be priority number one and will always be my primary concern as a pastor. So if your marriage is going through it and you seek counsel and you seek out your pastor at Inspire, I want you to know my primary concern will never be divorce but always be reconciliation. Are you with me? Now, this is important. If divorce is secured by any other reason than God does not, I'm sorry, if divorce, if divorce is secured by any other reason aside from sexual immorality, then God does not consider that divorce valid. Now, this is heavy, but we need to hear this. Now, you ready for this? Not only do we need to hear this, but the generation behind us needs to hear this. Be willing to take a bullet for the generation behind you. Be willing to take a shot for the generation behind you. You may be uncomfortable. There may be some mistakes that you feel like, man, I've already made. I'm going to get to that in a second because God always provides a way of an escape because he's a great God and he's a graceful God and he understands humanity. But I want you to know that we need to preach this, we need to teach this, and we need to model this, if not for you, for your sons and daughters behind you. Amen? Okay, good, good. We need to restore the sacredness of marriage in the eyes and hearts of our children. And I said this earlier, one of the greatest witnesses that the church can be to a dying world is thriving marriages. 
One of the greatest witnesses a church can have to a dying world is thriving marriages. We want healthy marriages at our church. We want our young single couples married into healthy marriages. We want our young couples and our singles, and maybe you're not a couple yet, and that's totally okay. We want you to have access to men and women of God who have went through the fire, baby. Who have woke up and said, you're ugly this morning, but I'm still going to love you anyway. Your breath stinks this morning. In fact, it stunk for the last two weeks. I haven't told you nothing, but now that I'm just bitter at you because of anything else, I'm going to throw it out there. We want couples to be real and to be honest and to be open. We want couples to say, you know, there was a couple of months where, you know what, I wasn't romantically involved. There was a couple of months where we were sleeping on the couch and I was in the front room. There was a couple of times, do you understand what I'm saying? There was a couple of moments, a couple of seasons in our lives where we didn't feel the warm butterflies and the fuzzies, but we chose to stay together. There were a couple of times where things were said. We want healthy marriages for you and for the young people behind you. Now, here's another important question. Besides sexual immorality, is there any other reason why God would give reason for a divorce? And I know I said that was the only thing, but is there anywhere else in Scripture where maybe God gives an explanation as why divorce might be okay? I want you to hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12 through 14. Are you ready? Paul says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What does that mean? If an unbelieving spouse leaves a marriage, the believing spouse is released. Do you hear me? So if you believe in Christ and you're following Christ and the unbelieving spouse, the husband or the wife, decides to have nothing to do with you or decides to have nothing to do with what God wants to do in your life and leaves you for that reason, Paul says you're released. Are you with me? Now, why would Paul seemingly, does it feel like a contradiction to Jesus? No, I want you to know the context in which Jesus is speaking. In that moment, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's speaking in the Hebrew Mosaic context. But when Paul's speaking, he's speaking to Gentiles. I want you to know when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Hebrews, the whole nation is followers of God. When Paul is speaking, he's speaking now to nations outside of Judaism, outside of Israel. See, Paul is now going to the ends of the earth, and there's a reality that one person might get saved in the household and another person might not. And if that person that is saved and that person is unsaved, if that person is unsaved leaves you, you are released. But also, if that unsaved person wants to stay with you, you stay with them and continue to be you continue to be what God has called you to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, physical abuse. If there is evidence of physical abuse, it is extremely important that we as a church and that you as good friends be extremely decisive with this action. In which case, Separation, police involvement, intervention, counseling, and even divorce can be necessary. If you're being physically harmed, 
if there is physical threat and danger to life. Do you understand? Do you see? Now, there's about three different concessions here. But in the end, this any cause culture needs to be kicked in the butt and kicked out of the church. We have no right to separate what God has called permanent. Finally, how do we minister healing to our current reality? No doubt in my mind, there are many or there may be some in here today who have been divorced, you've been remarried, and you most likely maybe have done it for other reasons than those mentioned. That's our reality, right? That's the culture we live in. So how do we minister healing? Here's the truth, and it may hurt a little bit, but it heals, I promise. If you've divorced for any reason besides sexual immorality or the reasons that we've mentioned and you've remarried, Jesus says that this new marriage started in adultery, but he still refers to this new marriage as a marriage. Now, here's what's interesting. Once a second marriage has occurred, it would be further sin to break that marriage up. Are you with me? Once a second marriage has occurred, it would be further sin to break it up, for it would be destroying yet another marriage. The second marriage should not be thought of as continuous adultery, for the man and woman are married to each other, not to anyone else. But the responsibility of both the husband and wife is such a case that they should ask for forgiveness, and they should repent of this previous sin, and then start over and begin to move forward in their current marriage and to strive to make their current marriage a sign, a wonder, and a witness to the glory of Christ. Are you with me? Are you with me on that? Someone's like, could you have done this on a Wednesday night? You had to preach this on a Sunday? <laughs> I'm even thinking that as I'm saying it. Could have filled it. Could have been a better time to do this. I'm going to read that again. If you happen to be in a remarried situation, it's the responsibility of the husband and wife in this case to seek forgiveness for God from God for the previous sin and then to ask for his blessing on this courage and this current marriage and strive to make this current marriage everything that your last marriage was not. So that it can still become a sign and a wonder to the world around you both in the church and outside of the church. <coughs> Seatbelt signs off. Everyone still with me? Notice how we close the doors? <coughs> it's like you can't get out. <coughs> so make sure we lie. We, we put a bar on it and everything. Let's move on. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. Jesus goes on to talk about retaliation. He says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I feel like this is a lot easier now that we pass the divorce, even though this is tough. 
It's like, ha, 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 this was cool. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. To best understand this section, you first have to understand that Jesus was differentiating between the court of law and our personal conduct as a believer. You see, these were instructions given to judges and civil authorities, not individual citizens. But the scribes and the Pharisees tried to extend these principles from the courts to personal relationships. In other words, they were trying to justify their right to personal vengeance. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth laid a foundation of justice, specifying the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved and limited the compensation of the victim to an exact equivalent and no more. These, this, was, this was legal jargon that Moses was writing for the courts to follow. These concepts had two purposes. They defined justice and they restrained revenge. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth said that justice must be given. And as a law, as a judge or a lawgiver in the court of law, retaliation is not to be taken personal, it's to be taken by the courts. And the courts are to hear it fairly. And the person who has been wronged is to be repaid, but they are, be, they are to be repaid equal compensation to what has been wronged by them. So the person doesn't take more than what they need to be repaid. Are you with me? As Christians, Jesus is telling us that our personal relationships, our personal encounters, are not to be based on the court of law, but on love. Even when somebody wrongs us, Retaliation should not be our response. Listen, Jesus is not prohibiting the use of force by government, police, or soldiers when combating evil. Rather, Jesus focuses on the individual conduct, reminding us that we should not take the law into our own hands. Right? So if, there, if there, is a, there is proper protocol in our society for calling the police, there's proper protocol in our society for going to the courts. Are you with me? Jesus does not expect us to bypass that. What he wants us to know is that we do not take the law into our own hands. This is not the Wild West. Prohibition against vengeance is not because retribution is wrong. It's because Revenge is God's prerogative. It's not yours. Are you with me? I want you to listen to a man by the name of Dr. Benjamin Mays. This is what he says about Martin Luther King Jr. at his funeral. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant death threats, maliciously accused of being a communist. Falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race. Slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times. Occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Let's say that again. It's just a powerful quote. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bomb, living day by day for 13 years under constant death threats. 
maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Diedrich Bonhoeffer called Christians to display a visible participation in Jesus' cross. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 23. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And since I read MLK's again, I think I got to read Jesus's one more time. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, and this is huge, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Martin Luther King once said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. For it has creative and redemptive power. Last part of this section that Jesus covered, loving your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. you So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we're going to reel it in here. I'm going to ask the worship team to get ready. And as I do that, I'm going to come down here. Mikey, can you help bring that down here for me? Once again, you guys have been wonderful today. We're going to take this la- these last statements of Jesus and finish off this morning. There are a lot of things that can be said here. Um, but I want to finish this section this morning <coughs> focusing on three things, three ideas. The first one is this. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Listen, by loving their neighbor and hating their enemies, the Pharisees succeeded at qualifying the category of neighbor. The Pharisees argued, my neighbor is one of my own people, a fellow Jew, my own kin, who belongs to my race and my religion. The Pharisees continued in their reasoning. The law says nothing about strangers or enemies since the command is to love my neighbor only. 
it must be taken as a permission to hate my enemy. You guys with me? I want you to know that we are a more prejudiced society than we think. Everyone in here has some sort of prejudice. A lot of times we equate racism and prejudice to a racial slur. And just because you haven't said a racial slur means you're not prejudiced. That's so not true. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. Simply being human means that you're going to be, there are going to be some prejudice. We all have experiences with people. We have experiences that have shaped and informed our understanding. And our experiences, negative and positive, have caused us to build up truths. And some of those truths are not correct or productive. Are you with me? Especially in this season and this time where our culture seems to be so polarized by racial and religious discrimination. You see, the Pharisees wanted to limit the word neighbor. Because if you limited the word neighbor, then you would not be on the hook for having to love beyond where you were comfortable. You wouldn't be on the hook to have to love the person that lives maybe a few steps, a few streets down. You wouldn't have to be, you wouldn't have to be uncomfortable and have to love the person that maybe does not love you. All you would have to love is your family and those that were close to you. That's what the Pharisees did with the word neighbor. What this did was simply convince those who wanted to be convinced and only confirm their own racial prejudice. By limiting who was their neighbor, they justified their discrimination. They justified their discrimination. But Jesus knows the whole scripture. He's the fulfiller of scripture. And he, he was like, I find it interesting that you'll quote Moses halfway and then you'll distort him. Let me quote Moses too. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19, scripture says this, And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. He says, hold up. Before you kick somebody out, remember when you were in Egypt and you were enslaved. You see, everyone was once a foreigner. Are you with me? Leviticus 19, 34 says this. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. You see how God keeps reminding them? <laughs> you were a foreigner too. These were statements given by God against racial discrimination in which Jesus upheld in a time and a culture where they were being ignored. Statements that are still very relevant today. Amen. But before I move on, I must emphasize something else that God said in Leviticus 24 verse 22. You ready for this? You are to have the same law. For the foreigner and the native born, I am the Lord your God. Although God was for the stranger and the alien, he was also about protecting Israel and promoting the need of assimilation. You know why I added that, right? No? All right. We have to be careful. And again, I am, when it comes to politics, uh, when it comes to what's going on right now, nobody is a stranger to the refugee crisis that we're having. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we've been collecting offering to send to an organization that loves on the refugees. And if you ask me personally, I'll tell you the whole story of what I feel. I feel what God feels for the refugees. I do believe that those that are running for their lives, I do believe that they deserve an opportunity to have shelter. And they deserve an opportunity to come to a place where they can be safe. 
But just like God put in his scripture, I do also believe that it is important for us to be able to make sure that those that are fleeing for their lives as they come in, that we have an opportunity that they assimilate well. Are you with me? Again, if you want to know my personal reaction to what's going on, I'll tell you behind the scenes. But let the scripture inform you. That's all I say. Remember, turn off Fox News, turn off CNN, BuzzFeed, or whatever else you do. Stop quoting people on Twitter and start getting in your word. That's the most important thing. You see, we, I think the church should be a place where recon, racial reconciliation takes place. I think the church should be a place where black, white, brown, all of those things come together and we could just all love Jesus as one. Right? Mar, I think it was Martin Luther King that said Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. is the most segregated time in the, entire, in the entire week. That's why I love this church. You look around, we're all over. And, you know, it's funny because that's, you know, Jamil and I, we made a kingdom, baby. That's what I started calling a long time ago. So it's a little half black, half Mexican, Portuguese, and everything else that my mom brought to the table. And, um, <laughs> and I look around and say, baby, you're going to be a sign and wonder to the world. That, you know what I mean? We're all colorblind in the kingdom. Um, second thing I want you to tell you, and we're, we're, we're coming to an end. Um, Jesus makes an interesting, uh, a curious statement in the midst of these verses. He says this, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. You guys remember that portion of scripture? No? All right. I want you to know this. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what God's saying. I love everybody. I love all of humanity. I make it rain on the just and the unjust. The sun comes out on the righteous and the unrighteous. I love all my creation. Do you understand that? I love all my creation. I, when it comes, it's something called common grace. Common grace is grace that God gives us, gives to all of us. Are you with me? Common grace is not expressed in the gift of salvation, but it's in the gift of creation. Without common grace, we couldn't eat. We couldn't breathe. We couldn't, life on this planet could not exist. Every day you wake up, you are experiencing common grace. And guess who experiences that? Both those who love Jesus and those who hate him. Are you with me? So we are to be like our Father in heaven. Then this standard of Christian love should be our standard. That whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're any other religion or not Christian, we should still share the same desire, the same love, and the same care. Are you with me? Anybody with me? For all men. Finally this morning. As we prepare for communion, <clears throat> here's what I want you to do. I want you to dwell on what it means to love your enemy. And I want to call your attention to the beauty of Jesus. You know what's so beautiful about Jesus? Scripture says that while you and I were enemies with God, he died for us. Our enemy is seeking our harm, but we are called to seek his good. I was just talking with Roberto as we were driving in this morning. For some reason, <laughs> we were talking about martyrs. And um, I looked at the Christian martyrdom 
Do you know that when a Christian dies, it's for the salvation of others? Do you know that? You know when Christ died, he gave his life so that we can have life? Did you know that you look at all the apostles and all the martyrs throughout history? They never died trying to kill someone else. They always died declaring the love of Jesus. Some were burned. Some were burned at the stake. Some were crucified upside down. And with every inch of their soul and their heart, they were declaring the love of Jesus. Some were being murdered and loving people. You see, there are some people in this world that martyr out of hatred. And there are some that martyr out of love. You see, even though our enemies want to harm us, we still want to seek their good. Are you with me? Why? Because this is how God treated us. Listen to the words of Romans 5. Six through eight. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good per I'm sorry, very rarely will anyone die for an unrighteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now verse 10 says this, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, for an unrighteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. While we were sinners, Christ died. While we were enemies, Christ died. While we wanted nothing to do with him, he wanted everything to do with us. He died. And if this is what Jesus did, then this is what we should do. The greatest privilege for us to do is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And if he loved us and we were enemies with him, then we should love both our neighbors, our friends, and our enemies. And so as you go throughout your work week, as you go throughout your life, I pray that the words of Jesus would continue to empower you and continue to inform you and continue to grow you. And I pray that Inspired Church will be a church doing everything it can to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That people within Union City would say, because Inspired Church is in Union City, Union City is better off. The Bay Area is better off. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspiredchurches.com.